this semester, if you're here with us last week, we're doing a series called Portraits of Jesus from the Gospel of John. And basically what we're doing is, we kind of said that if you look at the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're really more like documentaries or photographs. They're trying to capture some of the facts of Jesus, his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. John's doing those same things, but he's more of an artist. He's actually trying to, to paint pictures of who Jesus really is and capture something of his glory. So last week we looked at this idea of Jesus being the Word. That Jesus is everything God wants to say to you wrapped in a person. And tonight what's beautiful is we actually get to see Jesus perform his first miracle. And it's a beautiful miracle that he does at a wedding. And he actually makes a ton of wine. And it's going to be interesting. So let's read it. John 2, 1 through 11. You've got it in your handout. I'm just going to read it for us. Here's, I'm reading from the ESV. Here's what John writes. He says, On the third day, significant in the Bible, think resurrection, There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. It was probably one of Jesus' childhood friends, and their moms were so close. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast, it's like the head caterer, tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let me pray for us, and I want to jump into what does this mean for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are Lord of the wine. That you, that the sweetest things we've ever tasted, the best things we've ever feasted upon, uh, Lord, that you're better. 
And I pray that as we think about this miracle, that this sign that you're performing that has everything to do with you telling us something and showing us something about yourself, Jesus, would you be present to do that again tonight? To take this this story from your life, to take this first sign and make it real to us and, and meet us in our need where we are, even as you met this couple in their need. We pray these things with Christ in your name. Amen. You you think about the idea of weddings, it's pretty interesting because if there's any day in your life that's supposed to be perfect, that's supposed to kind of go off without a hitch, it's your wedding day. And yet, for those of us who have been married, um, we can tell you that rarely does that happen. So I was actually thinking about, I actually Googled wedding disasters just to see what fun things would pull up. And uh, there was this one post by this girl in Huffington Post. She was, she was a wedding planner and she was talking about the different wedding disasters she's experienced. This is my favorite one. I'm just going to read it, what she says. She says, one of the worst things I ever saw as a wedding director, she said three wedding guests who were sorority sisters of the bride took acid at the beginning of the wedding ceremony. We learned the sort of deeds, she says, from the bride later on. By the time dinner was through, they were tripping hard. They tried to eat out of the caterer's garbage, then stripped naked. This is my favorite part, stripped naked and, na- and jumped into the pool with a seven-year-old ring beer. Once we had them out of the pool and back in the villa, they jumped up in the tabletops to dance, semi-dressed in high heels. Asked to get off the tables, one girl, can't say young lady, she writes, she wasn't mature enough to be a woman, jumped on my husband and attacked him like a spider monkey. The DJs had to help us get her off of him. My own wedding, here's the disaster of my own wedding. I thought it would be a good idea the night before to, the day before, to go to the tanning bed. <laughs> a little, little trick, I'd never been in the tanning bed before. <laughs> didn't know what to expect and I really went for it and I mean I went he was like do you want to go five minutes 10 minutes 15 minutes I was like 15 totally I'll do 15 minutes person I've never met before who should know that I've never been to a tanning bed before and is going to just let me get on in there and I do and I'm wearing nothing but the goggles and 15 straight minutes like literally my wife when she saw me that night she like literally when she walked into the church at the rehearsal and she just burst into tears (laughs) because she knew that I was going to ruin all of our wedding pictures and indeed I did so if you go if you're ever at my house it's a true story if you're ever at my house all of our wedding pictures are in black and white (laughs) because I was hot dog red with little like white eyes wrapping us and if you see the ones in color like you can really tell What's fascinating to me about weddings, here's the point, is weddings are this interesting thing where everything is supposed to go perfect. And if if some of you dream about your weddings, you plan your weddings, you Pinterest the mess out of your weddings. And you want it to go perfect, and yet, rarely do they. And it's this this interesting human tension with us, where we kind of know that things aren't going to go very well, but we can't admit it to ourselves, much less to one another. Like, we kind of know we don't have everything together, and yet we can't admit that we can't admit our mistakes, we can't admit our failures, we're, we're too embarrassed to sort of bring what is really happening or tell what is really true about us to one another. And what I love about the story is Jesus, when he performs this first miracle, he doesn't do it in a temple. He does it at a wedding. He doesn't do it for, with sort of this congregation, he does it with this couple. And he meets this couple in what's about to be an incredibly disastrous, socially embarrassing, shameful thing in their lives And he rescues them from it. And what I love what that means is, we talked about the incarnation last week. The grace of the incarnation is simply this. Jesus, the word made flesh, is simply this for us. Is that Jesus meets us in our mistakes and failures of our ordinary lives. And he's able to take those mistakes and failures, even those things, especially as you've gotten a week and a half under your belt, you've got some, especially freshmen. He's able to meet you in. He meets us in. He meets us where we are, not where we should be. So the way that I want to kind of think about 
this passage is I really want to think about it. And the way that I was thinking about how I want to talk about it is I'm, I'm thinking like a Tarantino film. And what I want to do is kind of go through just scenes. There are four scenes as we kind of think about the story that if you miss each scene, you're going to miss the point of the story. So we're just going to kind of go Tarantino film style, scene by scene, each scene focused on a character or a detail of the text. And this is what we're going to start with. First, I want you to think about the first scene. Scene one is this couple. And what I love about this story is think about this couple and what they, how they must be fighting amongst themselves. Like, think about, they know that the wine has run out, this is going to be an incredible disaster, that they're going to live down the rest of their lives. Like, they're going to be that couple that the rest of the town talks about for the rest of their lives. About Remember that time at that Smith wedding, and they ran out of wine? Oh, that was so embarrassing. It was so awful. And what's fun to think about is just put little thought bubbles. Imagine this couple, and put little thought bubbles above their heads, and think what the bride and the groom must be thinking. So just with the bride. She's probably thinking something like this. I told him, I told him to get five extra cases of wine, and of course his dumb messed it up. Here's the groom. She is pissed. <laughs> like I might be sleeping on the couch during our honeymoon. This is so like his family. They can't do anything right. Like, of course they mess up. The one detail of this wedding they've got to get right, of course they mess it up. Uh, classic, whatever the groom's name family is. Husband, man, she's like really pissed. <laughs> like, this might be as mad as I've ever seen her, and this is not going to go well, and maybe I should have married her sister, or we'll see. <laughs> and so you think about the couple, and here they are, they're, you've got to imagine they're at, you know, they're, there's incredible tension, and, they're, and you're, they're at your, I mean, the thing is, like, my wife and I got in a fight at our wedding because her dad, it's a long story, but her dad, instead of doing this first dance, they, they played this song that I hate, and it sort of causes, as we were dancing, I was like wanting to kill her with my eyes. And there's actually a picture of me looking at my wife. Like it's, it's a pretty hilarious picture. It's me like with a frown on my face and her dad is in the spotlight just laughing hysterically. <laughs> but the hard thing is you're, on wet, you're at your own wedding so you can't really bring it out in the open. And I want you to see that this is where Jesus meets them. He meets them where they are, not where they should be. This is the beautiful thing to you about Jesus, is he meets you in your mistakes and failures. He meets you where you are, not where you should be. Here's how we, I think we think about Jesus. I don't know what your home was like growing up. Here was like my home, when my mom wanted to have guests over, and my wife's the same way, she wanted to get the home spotless. And she, the thought of guests coming over to the home, like to see the home as it actually was day to day, the mess that kind of happens with kids and people living in a house embarrass her. So she wanted to, if we had any guests coming over, we're going to, and still to this day, if we have any guests coming over, we're going to make it seem like the house is kind of lived in, like maybe a Southern living photographer could kind of come sneak some pics. Like that's the kind of level that, that my mom and now my wife kind of want the house to look like. And we, and my, you know, and both of them to this day, they don't want to have guests in the home unless it looks spotless. And I think that's how you and I are with Jesus. We think we'll let Jesus, we'll meet Jesus once we're put together and have everything in place. And I want you to know that that what Jesus knows is if you do that, you'll never meet Jesus. Because Jesus only comes into messy homes. Jesus only comes into messy lives. Jesus only comes into the mess of your life. And he meets you where you are, not where you should be. So the first thing we see is look at this couple and see the grace of Jesus meeting you where you are. But then scene two, look at the mother. Look at Jesus' mother. And this is the, the kind of conversation that makes us a little uncomfortable. Because here is Jesus's, you know, so they're at the wedding because Jesus' mom knows this family and his childhood friend most likely. And Jesus' dad is probably dead at this point. And so here's Jesus and his friends. They come to this pretty big wedding. 
And the mom realizes what's about to happen, and she says, Jesus, you have to help. What's interesting is that she goes to Jesus. And if you look at the conversation, it looks a little bit like, is she nagging Jesus? Is she doing that thing that moms are so good at where she's, you know, moms sometimes are experts or like ninjas when it comes to like putting passive aggressive comments in, the, in like a question form. And you're, like, you're realizing as they're asking a question, it's really a criticism of you, but you don't figure it out until after. It's like this judo juke that moms can do. Like, is that what Jesus' mom doing right here? And, and what is Jesus' response? If you look at it at first glance, it seems kind of harsh when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And I think if we think about this conversation on a purely social level, we're missing it. I think we have to understand is that they're entering into this spiritual, a spiritual dynamic of their relationship. Where it's interesting where Mary is Jesus' mom and yet Jesus is Mary's savior. And it's interesting that Mary actually goes to Jesus to do something about this disaster that's about to happen in this wedding. Instead of going to the head caterer. Or instead of going to the families of the groom, Jesus goes, Mary goes to Jesus because she knows he's the only one that can do something. And Jesus, when he says, he seems kind of harsh, Jesus is not being harsh with his mom. We know Jesus was sinless. We know that he didn't like lose his temper with his mom. Like This isn't like the classic Jewish mother, Jewish son relationship like in the trip with Seth Rogen and Barbara Streisand. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is actually saying, look, my time has not yet come. My hour, he says. And when he says hour in the gospel, he's meaning one particular weekend. The hour in which his crucifixion and resurrection are going to happen, where he publicly lets the entire world know, this is who I am and this is what I've come to do. And he's saying to his mom, this is the first place where I'm beginning to let my glory out. And I'm not ready to fully display it to the whole world, but I want to let just a little bit out so this couple can see it and this wait staff can see it and you can see it and my friends can see it as I'm about to save this disaster of a wedding. But what's fascinating is Mary is actually an illustration of two things to us. The way that Mary goes to Jesus is illustration for us of two things. The, one, the first thing is faith. This is a beautiful picture of faith, what faith looks like. Sometimes we think about faith being you have strong faith, like faith is something you do or muster. And I want you to see from this passage that all faith simply is, is taking your need and bringing your need to Jesus. Because he's the only one that can do something about it. Tim Keller likes to say, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, it's the object of your faith. And small faith in a beautiful, worthy, big, incredible object is what saves you, not strong faith in something that you're mustering up yourself. No, faith in Jesus is simply bringing your needs to him, coming to him as you are and saying, Jesus, I need you. Help. Save me. Be my savior. Be the life that I'm looking for. Be what I need. But she's also a beautiful example of prayer. Prayer is, prayer is similar. Prayer is taking real needs. Prayer is not, this is what you and I typically do with prayer. If you've been a Christian for very long, the, way that, the reason your prayer life is struggling and frustrating is you typically think, and I typically think, if I could just say the right words at the right time, in the right way, in the right place sometimes even, for the right, um, you know, for the right amount of time, then my prayer life would be growing and vibrant. And what this passage says is all prayer is is bringing real needs of real people to a real Jesus who can do something about it. It's saying, Jesus, my roommate needs friends. Please give them friends and help me to be a friend. Help me love them until I love them. Now, some of you right now, like you want to kill your roommate. This is, not, this is an aside, but love your roommate until you love your roommate. Love them until you love them. Don't wait till you feel love for them. Play Xbox with them. Play Call of Duty. Even if you, like when I play with my friends, I hate it because I'm like definitely the first one to die. You know, so it's... Like, I am the worst at first-person shooters, and I try to get in there. I've played so much Goldeneye in my life. And it, was, it was good for my sanctification, because I was, like, humiliated every time. 
But, but prayer is taking real needs of real people to a real Jesus who can do something about it. So first, the couple. Second, the mother. Then the scene three is sort of shifting actually to this to an actual physical thing that's happening in this passage. And it's the jars. These six stone jars. What in the world is the point of the jars? And why are they there? And why does Jesus choose them as the thing in which he makes water? And what you have to understand is typically in Jewish like, celebrations like this, there were usually seven stone water jars in which they would do a ritual cleansing. So before you would come into a party, they would be filled with water. You would wash your hands. Part of it was practical just to be clean. But a huge part of it was this ritual thing. It's fascinating that Jesus chooses those jars. First of all, it's fascinating that there are only six there, which means it's incomplete. But it's more fascinating to think that these are the jars in which Jesus begins to make the best wine anyone at this party has ever tasted. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying something about the religion that these people have been living under. Because typically the religion that, that most of us are born into thinking about the way that we want to approach God is we're going to obey God and then gain his acceptance. That we're going to do the things that we need to do to be accepted by him and then we'll be loved by him. And Jesus is saying something profound about grace. As he takes these old jars that they're used to in this old form of religion, he says religion is something far different than the gospel. The gospel is something that's surprising because it's God saying, I'm going to do everything you need that needs to be done for you to be accepted. You're already accepted, therefore obey me. You're already loved, therefore don't try to win my acceptance. You already have all of the acceptance I could possibly give to you. You are my, he says, if you belong to him, you are my child. Don't live like a slave. Don't live like a servant. You belong to me. And Jesus is showing them. He's doing something incredibly unexpected. The Jesus that you and I think of is like the Jesus that would come. We would think Jesus would come in. This is how you and I typically think about Jesus in our worst moments, especially if you've grown up in the South. Is we would think Jesus would come in and fill those jars with water and stop the party and be like, okay, people, it's time to wash up. Let's stop this party. Let's kill this thing. Y'all need to get clean. Let's wash some hands. Let's get pure. And instead, Jesus, when he comes into this party, he doesn't shut the party down. Jesus actually comes into this party, and he doesn't only keep it going, but he makes it better. That's why the, the master, once he takes the wine that Jesus has transformed as the servants have filled them up to jars, the master, the, the, the head caterer comes out and says, listen, this wine is unbelievable. Typically, the wed- typically weddings, you have the great wine first, and then people have had plenty of that. And then, the, then you give the poor wine last. And that's not the case with Jesus here. He actually gives the very, very best wine, the best wine that this caterer has probably ever tasted. This food, he's a food snob because he's a caterer, I'm sure. And he says he saved the best. Jesus flips things upside down. And Jesus comes with grace that unnerves us and delights us and surprises us. I always think when I think about this, the way that Jesus works, the religion versus the gospel, and the way that Jesus, you think he's going to come and shame and try to shame us out of our sins. Like you would think, sometimes the way we think about Jesus, that he would come in and be like, yeah, you should have gotten more wine. Time to pay the piper. Time to let this party burn. Yeah, you should have gotten your stuff together. And instead he spares them in this incredibly gracious way where they actually end up looking like the ones that, that bought and served this unbelievable wine. The scene that I always like to think about, um, we watch a lot of kids' movies with my kids. I've got four I mentioned. And the one that I love that every time gets me is the movie Babe. Babe's an old movie, story of Farmer Hoggett and this, this pig that he named Babe, obviously, that he trains up. And trains to be a sheepdog and enters into pageants. You remember the scene where the other animals are saying, Babe, you know what's going to happen. He's, 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 he's fondling, not fondling, that's not a great word. 
He's loving you. He's, he's coddling you. He's treating you well because he's going to serve you as bacon. Like he's going to serve you at Thanksgiving and this is going to be the, he's, he's treating you well. He's loving you well because he's about to slaughter you. And remember, Babe has that crisis of faith where he like runs away and then he gets lost and ends up coming back. And there's that beautiful scene that makes me feel uncomfortable and cry every time where Farmer Hoggett is trying to bring Babe back to health. And remember, he does that thing. If you've seen the movie, if not, it's worth, it's worth Googling. Where he starts to sing to Babe. And then he does that other weird thing where he not only starts singing to Babe, and I'm not going to like break out into it because that would be uncomfortable and none of you would come back. But he starts to dance. Like he literally starts dancing and like twirling and doing this like iris jig. And the other animals from the barnyard are like crowding into the windows because they can't believe what they're seeing. Because they're so astonished. Who sings over a pig? And you see what Jesus is doing? Who sings over sinners? Who sings over us who have who've come into this place tonight with all kinds of mistakes and failures and sins? And we long for a God who loved and sees us as we are and sings over us in love. And Jesus is saying, you forget the old way of religion of trying to earn my acceptance and love. I bring it freely. And it's better than the best one you've ever had. Which brings me to the last scene, the fifth, the fourth scene, which is the wine. All right, so the shocking part and kind of the controversial part of this passage is how much wine Jesus makes. Like this is kind of the elephant in the room a little bit. Because Jesus makes a ton, literally almost 150 gallons of really good wine that would be about 80 bottles. What, what's he doing? Like, as he, some people look at this passage and like, I can't, I don't want to do this passage. Was it real wine? Yes, it's real wine. If you look at the Greek, like, you can't get around it. It's like real wine that people brought that was really good. Obviously, the scripture says a couple things about wine. Paul's going to say in Galatians, do not get drunk with wine. The Bible is very clear about drunkenness, that it's always sinful and not pleasing to God. But the other thing the Bible is clear about is that wine, especially in the Old Testament, is a picture of joy and celebration and abundance. So a couple of, of verses that sort of bring that out. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. You cause, the psalmist is talking about God. He says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. And Zechariah says this. He says, for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women and what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm about to make, I make the best. Like, I'm, turn, I'm turning this water not into Natty Light. I'm turning this water into, like, Hetty Topper, which is, like, the best beer rated consistently across the world, number one. I'm not taking it. It's not Jim Bean. This is, like, Pappy Van Winkle. This is the best bourbon you've ever taken. Like, I'm making the good stuff. Why? Because you know what's better than the best wine you've ever tasted? Knowing me and being drunk with my love. I, Jesus is the true and better back. Jesus is the true and better uh, Jack Daniels. It's funny when we think about drinking, and I don't know what your relationship with that is, and a lot we could say. But I just want to kind of say two things as we think about it. Typically, when we think about you know why you know, think about Hank Williams saying, "Hank, why do we drink to get drunk?" Hopefully, that's not your answer. But here's kind of I think two things that, that often we think. One, on the one hand, typically it helps us forget our pains and sorrows and sadness. And on the other hand, sometimes people will say, I feel like my true self. It helps me kind of unnerve some of that social tension. And it's funny that typically we think about, why, how is Jesus better than that? How is he the true and better Jack Daniels? It's because the only thing that, that makes you sort of 
You know, drinking will help you forget your sorrows and your pain and your sadness. But trusting Jesus and knowing and being drunk with his love will help you see that Jesus is bigger than all your pains and sorrows and sadness. Drinking to sort of say, I, I'm going to be who I am, I'm going to be my true self. Listen, the only way you become your true, faith, your true self is when you can face your own failures. Because sometimes when you, you drink to forget, you wake up as the same person carrying the same load the next day. You wake up as the same person with the same burdens, and, and you, maybe you, you hate yourself still as you wake up in the next morning. And, and I want you to see that Jesus is the one who helps you begin to love yourself as the way that, in the way that he loves you, because he's the one who's faced your failures for you. That you might learn to find your fulfillment, your love, your joy, your true self in him. And there's this beautiful thing where Jesus is saying, listen, knowing me is like tasting and enjoying the best wine you've ever had. Just last week, it's fascinating, I was listening to NPR, and literally a week ago, there was a huge earthquake in Napa, and tons and tons, like, I'm talking hundreds of thousands of gallons of the best wine that's made in Napa was destroyed. Like, estimators were looking at the damage done, because we're talking about, like, fine collections of wine, and it's upwards of probably a billion dollars, because some of the collections were so expensive and, and nice. And uh, it's, it's fun to imagine people, like, cleaning that up. I don't know how that works, but... And the thing that you have to see from this passage is that the wine always runs out. The wine always runs out. Whatever it is you're looking to other than Jesus always runs out. And Jesus is saying, I'm the only one whose love for you will never run out. I love the way that Dale Brunner says it. He says, the wine always runs out, but knowing Jesus puts us in connection with the winery. With the one who can fill us. With the one who, who makes our cup overflow." Who keeps our cup full with joy and abundance. Who can take the places of our mistakes and failures and transform them into places of abundance and joy. And there's actually a fifth scene that I think John intends for us to get. So first the couple, second the mother, the stone jars, the wine. But here's the fifth scene. And the fifth scene is simply you. The reality is we're, we're, we're fresh into the semester. And I know part of what happens, if you're anything like me, we're fresh off a of Labor Day weekend. And maybe you've come in here tonight and you've got some fresh mistakes and failures and things you feel ashamed of and things you're embarrassed about and things you haven't told your parents, things you haven't told your roommate, things you haven't told your friends. And maybe your question is, how could Jesus know that and love me? Isn't what I'm supposed to do kind of get that right, clean that up, then move toward him? And I want you to see that, that Jesus has come to transform the shame of your mistakes and failures by his grace, into places of joy and gladness and abundance and life. Jesus has come not to shame you out of your sins, but to love you out of your sins. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that uh, the shame that we bring even tonight is no match for your grace. We thank you that um, the way in which you love us is utterly realistic in every way. You know us. You know what we come with. You know what we're experiencing. And yet, Lord, you are able to turn water into wine. You're able to take the places we're embarrassed by and ashamed of and, and turn them into places of abundance and joy and life. Jesus, you said that you came that you might bring life and life abundant. And, Lord, it's easy for us to to miss you and to misunderstand you and to misjudge you. And Lord, I pray tonight for those of us who, who aren't quite sure what to do with you, that you would give us just that picture of, from this story of how gloriously gracious you are to us and how you meet us where we are and not where we should be. 
and are able to transform us in ways that are almost unbelievable. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.